welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. Well, welcome everyone to the Mental Healthy Podcast. We're glad to have you here with us today. I've got a great guest today. It's Dr. Laurel Shaler. She works here at Liberty University as a core counseling professor, and she's got a really neat background too. She's got a bachelor's degree in sociology, master's of theological studies, master's of social work, and a PhD in counselor ed. So I like to say she's the whole package (laughs) academically. She's got a lot of experience. And one of the neat things, too, is that she wrote a book called Reclaiming Sanity, Hope and Healing for Trauma, Stress, and Overwhelming Life Events, which you can see on Amazon and other book distribution sites. Welcome to the program, Dr. Shaler. Well, thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about your book, Reclaiming Sanity, because I know that seems to be like a topic that it's always relevant. I mean, there's always traumatic things going on in society, some shooting or natural disaster or or even just, I guess, losses that we all experience, having a loved one die or things like that. So this is certainly relevant. And we I appreciate you writing that book. I read some of the reviews of your book online, and you had a lot of really positive reviews. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Your book talks about a number of things related to stress and trauma and all. And And I think probably the most common thing people hear about is PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, some people have a vague idea of what that means, but why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a feel for what is post-traumatic stress disorder? Sure. Well, post-traumatic stress disorder, or often shortened to PTSD, is a diagnosis that requires a triggering event that would be an exposure to actual or threatened death or serious injury, or it could be a sexual violation. And once somebody has either directly experienced the trauma or witnessed the trauma or even learned that the traumatic event occurred to somebody that's very close with them, or maybe they've even experienced firsthand repeated exposure to the details of trauma, even if it's not pertaining to them, and not necessarily through media or television, but something work-related, they could be diagnosed with PTSD if they have additional symptoms, if they struggle with intrusive thoughts, or they are avoiding reminders of their trauma, or maybe they have negative thoughts or negative feelings, or maybe they experience a hyperstartle response. So they're always maybe on edge. I often have heard those with PTSD say they never like sitting with their back to a door. Maybe they have flashbacks or nightmares. So there's a wide variety of symptoms that can go along with PTSD. You know, it reminds me, I grew up about an hour north of New York City. And I remember during 9-11 when that happened and it was a horrible day, I heard a lot of people say, oh, there's 10 million people in New York City. And now we're going to have 10 million people with PTSD. (laughs) But we found out later that there wasn't nearly that many people. There was a lot of people who experienced trauma, stress, and a horrible life event that day, but they really didn't have PTSD symptoms. What are your thoughts about that? Like how might a person experience these traumatic events but not necessarily develop PTSD? Like what's the difference between those two people? Well, first, I want to acknowledge that's so true that many people experience a traumatic event but don't go on to develop PTSD. And that's actually really good news. Most people are resilient. They're able to bounce back. They don't develop any chronic issues as a result of experiencing trauma. But some people, one in eight or one in ten, 
might develop a PTSD. And sometimes people experience a traumatic event and they don't go on to develop full-blown PTSD, but maybe they have something that they start to struggle with. For example, maybe they start to have difficulty concentrating or problems with sleep, or maybe they're more irritable than they used to be, but perhaps they don't experience actual PTSD. The other thing that can happen is sometimes someone might experience something traumatic and they don't develop kind of the classic PTSD symptoms, but maybe they go on to develop a lot of anxiety or maybe they become depressed or something of that nature. So I think whenever we're, you know, assessing a client after a trauma, we have to be mindful that one, they may not develop any mental health issues or diagnosis as a result of their trauma. And two, they might develop something that isn't classically PTSD. What I'm hearing you say is that this can be on a continuum. You might go through a bad experience, but you might not have 100% PTSD or zero. It could be somewhere on that continuum. Is that a good way to think of it? Yes, exactly. It can be somewhere on that continuum. And we have to think about risk factors. What might contribute to somebody developing PTSD? One example is pre-event factors. So what is going on for this person prior to their exposure? So even using the example of 9-11, there might be some individuals that had already experienced trauma before that day. And so then having another traumatic event would raise their risk of developing PTSD. Also, those that have experienced abuse or mistreatment as children, they're more likely to develop PTSD if they're exposed to trauma later in life. And then we also have to look at what is going on during the event. So is this repeated trauma or is it a singular traumatic event? And what's going on after the traumatic event. One key indicator of whether or not somebody will develop PTSD is the amount of social support they receive following PTSD. So social support has been determined to be associated with a lower rate of PTSD. Also, is somebody physically injured as a result of the traumatic event? Did they already have healthy coping skills? Are they able to return to a normal life after the event? For example, if somebody has lost their home to a fire, to a hurricane, earthquake, some other natural disaster, they might be more likely to develop PTSD because they can't return to their normal routine and normal environment. So we have to look at the pre-event factors, the event factors, and the post-event factors to help us determine who is more likely to develop PTSD. I should let the listeners know, too, that you said it was okay for me (laughs) during this interview to ask you about a difficult life experience you've been through yourself just so we keep this interview not just academic, but sort of keeping it real. So why don't you go ahead and share with the listeners something you've experienced that was difficult and how you overcame it? Sure. Well, thank you. Yes, I think that's a really important question. And I always try and write and speak from a Me Too perspective. So I try to write and talk about what I know and what I've been through. And this book that our conversation is based on was written a few years ago. And so I do share some examples in that book, but I'd like to bring it more current Within the last year and a half, I've been through a number of events that have been very challenging. I lost my brother. My brother died suddenly. He died while my father was in the hospital undergoing cancer treatment. And unfortunately, after 17 months, my father also died. So I've experienced two major losses. It all happened within 17 months. During that time, we also adopted a child, and my husband was deployed, so I had two young children to take care of, and we were in the middle of a pandemic at that time. So we had a lot going on in a very short amount of time, and I really was led to 
this idea of resiliency. I'd already studied some about that topic in the past, but I kind of came back around to this and how can I be more resilient? And it doesn't mean that there wasn't any struggles or that there won't be struggles in the future. There was a lot of grief. There is still grief. It's been very stressful. And I will say too, that even good stress is stressful and our bodies don't always know the difference. Like adopting a child, while that was a tremendous blessing and we absolutely adore our son, that also was another added layer of stress within this context of all these other things happening. So some of the ways that I was able to manage some of this is what I talk about in Reclaiming Sanity. I reached out to other people for social support. I relied very heavily on my Christian faith. I spent time reading my Bible, journaling, listening to worship music trying to stay involved in church and Bible studies as much as possible. And I also saw a counselor to talk about some of these issues and to try and work through some of the stressors. So, you know, those are some of the things that I moved towards and that I found to be helpful for me as I worked through and continue to work through a lot of what I've experienced. Thank you for sharing all that. That's certainly a lot you've been through in the last year and a half. I've known about it, but from a distance, since you're not right here in the same town as me right now, but we certainly have wished you well and prayed for you during all that time. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff well, to go thank through. Well, so much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been very, very helpful to have, you know, the Liberty faculty and staff have been really wonderful. So I've appreciated that. You're part of the family here. That's great. <laughs> One of the things you talk about in your book is that sometimes people have excuses they use to rationalize negative emotions. What are some of the excuses people use and what are some of the ways we can break free from some of those excuses? Yeah, so I'll focus specifically here on anger because it's an emotion that so many people rely on. It's like their go-to emotion. It's a habit, and it's also easier to have anger than to have other emotions. I know I've experienced that in my own life. Like It's easier to be angry than it is to be sad or worried, so we allow that anger to come through, but we use these excuses as to why it's okay, why it's acceptable to be angry. So we'll say, if I don't get angry, people will think I'm weak. But the reality is that when we look at this from a biblical perspective, that in the second Corinthians 12, 9 says that the Lord's strength is perfected in our weakness. So we can let God take our limitations and our weaknesses and turn those into strength. We don't have to think about it in terms of I have to prove that I'm strong by getting angry. I'm not going to let people walk all over me. You know, I'm not going to turn the other cheek. We can still set boundaries, which are really important without being angry. So we can learn to be assertive instead of anger and not allow anger to be a mask for other emotions. Another myth that we use is this idea that we shouldn't keep our anger bottled up. But the reality is that we don't have to keep it bottled up. And we also don't have to fly off the handle. We don't have to allow our anger to explode. Venting anger is often an aggressive manner that reinforces aggressive behavior. So we need to learn to manage the frustration and the irritability. We have to be able to distinguish between issues that need to be addressed and those that don't. So managing anger is not the same as keeping it bottled up. So we want to be mindful of that. Another myth is that anger is healthy. And anger itself isn't necessarily healthy. I mean, there is this idea of righteous anger, and there are times that we have a right to be angry and maybe we should be angry. But anger itself 
does not resolve the problem. It does not resolve any health issues and it also doesn't resolve any conflict that we have in life or with other people. Now, it might be a motivator, like, you know, it's a cue. All of our emotions are cues. So, okay, if I'm feeling angry, what should I do with this? It might motivate us to action. But if the action is an aggressive action, then maybe the emotion is misplaced because we know that things like high blood pressure, teeth grinding, gastric distress, shortness of breath, anxiety, none of those things feel good and they're not healthy. And those are often the results of anger. So anger is not not healthy. And finally, and this might be my favorite myth, is the idea that I can't help it if other people make me mad. (laughs) So when I used to facilitate a lot of anger management groups, we used to have this policy or this, this rule, this group rule, where everyone had to use an I statement. I got angry or I got mad or I was triggered by so-and-so rather than they made me mad because our emotional responses are our responsibility. So it can be easy to blame others when in reality we have to own our own feelings and own our own behavior. So we have to learn to control ourselves instead of expecting other people to take the blame for our actions and feelings. Your book also talks about the role that forgiveness can play in healing from past traumas and all. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and forgiveness can be a really difficult topic. I mean, I sat with clients who were very clear that they were not going to forgive the person who harmed them. And I think we too often conflate forgiveness with reconciliation. And we think that if we forgive someone, that means we have to be reconciled to them, that we have to continue a relationship with them. And in reality, that's not what it means at all. We are called to forgive, biblically speaking, but even for those that do not follow the Bible, forgiveness is still in their best interest. The old expression, unforgiveness is like holding your own head underwater. When we don't forgive other people, we continue to suffer. So forgiveness doesn't mean that you rationalize their behavior, that you justify, that you excuse it, that you say they don't deserve justice. You can still forgive and expect justice. And we've seen that even play out you know, in national news. I can think of that situation in Texas where an officer shot and killed someone and the family expressed forgiving the officer and even went and hugged the officer in the court right in the middle of the trial to express forgiveness. It's not that that excuses the behavior or that they won't deeply grieve the loss of their loved one, but that allows them to heal from the pain rather than just continuing down this path of just staying stuck in their angry emotion. You make me think of all the research that's been done in like the last 10, 15 years on forgiveness. I've read research by Dr. Robert Enright Dr. Everett Worthington, Dr. Chan mm-hmm. Kim, who works with us. There's all kinds of research backing up everything you're saying about how forgiveness really helps people heal and lower stress levels. And there's all kinds of biological studies about how forgiveness helps people be healthier physically. So there's all kinds yes. of benefits, aren't there? There are. And Dr. Worthington is amazing. Just looking at his own story and the fact that he researched forgiveness and then went through a major life crisis that resulted in him having to make that decision. Am I going to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak, where he had to choose to practice what he preached. I'm using a lot of cliches here, but where he had to forgive. And it's a very powerful story. And I recommend that anyone who might be interested in that topic, take a look at what Dr. Everett Worthington has written about. 
I've heard that story before, too. I don't want to give it all away, but he's got a powerful story. You also talk about how can we know who we and they really are. What do you mean by that in the book? Well, what I mean is that we're not defined by who others think we are or by who others say we are. We are not defined by our honors or our employment or the titles because all those things are man-made distinctions, and really they can be distractions. So what I think is really important for people to consider is that our identity has to be found in who God says we are. The Bible has a lot to say about this, and God says a lot about us. And I love the book of Ephesians when I'm going to look, okay, who am I? Who are we? Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us. Ephesians 1.7 tells us that we're forgiven. And Ephesians 2.10 states that we are his workmanship. So we're not our own. We are his. We are his creation and his workmanship. So I think something that can be very helpful when we start to feel defined and labeled, and even if it's our own voices that say that, because sometimes we're our own worst enemy and we say the worst things about ourselves. So instead of thinking those things, we can stop ourselves right then and say, no, I'm not stupid. I'm God's workmanship. Or no, I am not unloved. I'm not unwanted. I'm a friend of Jesus. No, I do not deserve to be abused. I am a temple of God. So we have to really focus on allowing the voice of Jesus to override any other negative voice that might be echoing through our minds. You know, the neat thing is this program goes out to a lot of people who are Christians, but some who are not. But the principles that you're getting at apply to everyone the same anyway, because what you're getting at is that people are often shaped by their life experiences, and they define themselves many times by what they've been through. So, for example, your book is about trauma and difficult life experiences and stress. People who've been through these difficult experiences often define themselves as a survivor or something like that. Or or I think about people who've been through addictions, for example. I know a lot of friends who struggle with alcohol and they say, well, hey, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic or something like that. And we can define ourselves by things different from what you're saying. I hear you saying like if people are Christians, they should define themselves by the relationship with God, like saying I'm God's workmanship. Because if you define yourself by something that's successful, like your relationship with God, that's going to lead to positive mental health outcomes. But if you define yourself by, you know, hey, I'm Ken, I'm an alcoholic, that might make me feel more depressed. Is that part of what you're saying? Yes, it really is. It's not so much at looking at where our wounds lie or where we are struggling or what problems we have, but it's looking at ourselves as a whole valuable person. And there are some areas that we're going to compartmentalize, but not allowing those parts of us to over-identify who we are. So I don't want to just be somebody who has had a lot of loss. I want to be somebody who has had a lot of love in my life and who has experienced the joys of having an amazing father and a wonderful brother. And I don't just want it to be, oh, that's so sad that Laurel, you know, lost these two family members. You know, I know that I am still loved and be loved. And that just because I've had these difficult experiences happen in my life, that doesn't mean that I'm somehow broken or wounded in a way that I can't recover and go on to have a meaningful life. You've certainly let God use those experiences in your life to shape you, but to shape you in ways that help heal other people, I think. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a part of 
where resiliency comes from. You know, what kind of mindset do we have? I have a growth mindset, so that really serves me well because I'm able to say, okay, this is hard. I'm going to make time and space to lament and grieve, and that's going to be a lifelong process, and that doesn't mean that I can't simultaneously enjoy life and also join in the journey that others are facing. Absolutely. Let's change the angle of our conversation a little bit. There's some people listening who are mental health professionals and so forth, and they're approaching it from a treatment standpoint. But what advice do you have for those who are loving someone who is suffering? Someone they love is going through a hard time. What would you say to them? Yeah, so being a support person or even a caregiver can be really challenging, especially if the people that we love are suffering and we don't know how to help them or they're not always able to put into words what they need. So I'll just give a couple of tips. One is let that person know that you're there, but also give them space. So allow that individual to share what they want to share in their time, in their way, without, one, bringing the conversation back around to yourself constantly, or two, trying to fix them. This is actually one reason why I'm a huge advocate of counseling, because this is a place that the person that is hurting can go and reasonably expect that the counselor is not going to make the conversation about them. That's a lot harder in our other relationships because too often in an attempt to be empathetic, our loved ones might then want to talk about their own pain when it might not be the best time. Sometimes it is a good time because we want to know that there are others that are experiencing or have gone through something that we've gone through. But sometimes the hurting person just needs space to share what they want to share without an attempt to be fixed because nobody can really fix our problem. So there's no reason that we should even try to do that. And it can do more harm than good if we do. Another tip would be to be patient. First Corinthians 13, 4 says that love is patient. It takes a lot of patience and flexibility even to be in a relationship with someone, especially if they've experienced trauma. It can impact their ability to just do life in a way that might seem normal to us. Maybe everyday routine errands or even fun events might become a challenge for them. So one example that instantly comes to my mind is the whole idea of fireworks. I've worked with a lot of traumatized individuals for whom fireworks was not a pleasant experience. They were very easily startled when they heard those. So then they had to work with their family members about how can we deal with, for example, 4th of July so that it can still be a day where we can maybe have some quality family time without me being triggered. It's not about encouraging individuals to avoid, but also we want to respect the boundaries and the current condition and capabilities of our loved ones. So this is kind of where the whole idea of meeting someone where they are comes to mind. And then I'll throw this one in, of course, encourage your loved ones to seek mental health treatment if needed and be willing to participate if that's something that would be helpful. I mean, if you're married to somebody who is struggling, it might be that going into counseling together would be helpful, even if it's just that you can receive some education about how to better support your loved one who is struggling. You've hit on like a great bullet point list there for the listeners, and I know that it'll be super helpful because we try to keep this podcast practical, and this certainly is. Let me ask this too. You've written a whole book here, which is a lot more than a lot of people have done. What are you hoping that the listeners get from reading your book? I would hope that people really would find hope for healing. The title is Hope and Healing, but at a minimum, I would hope that they would find hope for healing, that they would know that they can recover 
from traumatic events. They can recover from stress and the overwhelming life events that take place, that they can develop resiliency even in the aftermath of things that they never thought they would be able to survive. They can. They can survive. And the reason that I have found for my hope is Jesus. And so that's also a big part of what I want to leave with people, that Jesus Christ is our hope. That's what gives me comfort in my most difficult moments in my loss, dealing with my loss, is just the hope of eternity with Jesus and with my loved ones that have gone on before me. Well, let's dive into that a little bit more. Some listeners to the program here come from a Christian perspective and some don't, but we're speaking about your life experience a little bit here. Non-Christian people might be curious. I mean, you mentioned Jesus and all this and how it helps with your trauma or whatever, but explain how can Jesus help you find hope and healing? Like, for example, with the things you've been through, what does it look like for him to help you find that hope and healing? Yeah, so what it looks like for me is I would take time to read through Scripture. So, for example, I really spent a lot of time reading about King David in the Old Testament and about Job in the Old Testament, especially in the aftermath of my brother's death, and looking at how those individuals suffered and how they were able to come through the suffering and how they were blessed by God and used by God despite or in spite of what they had been through. So for me, it was a reminder that you can go through really hard times. You can come out with a stronger faith in Jesus. You can be assured that God will never leave you, even in the midst of the worst possible times in your life, that he can be a comforter to you, and that he gives you the promise that in the end, when I say in the end, in the end of time as we know it, because based on my belief, you know, I believe that Jesus will return and that this world as we know it will be upended. And at that point, there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears. And so that gives me hope. But it's not just a long-term hope like, oh, in the future, I also have a daily hope because I know that he is with me day in and day out. And that for me, what all I have to do is to cry out to him and he hears me and he responds and he brings me peace and comfort. So that's how I have found hope and healing through Jesus. And there's a beautiful song that says he's the God of the hills and the valleys. That's what I have discovered more so in the last couple of years of my life than ever before. I've had a lot of good things happen in my life and I thank God for those. And I've also had these really unspeakably hard times, but God has been right there through those as well. And the growth mindset that you mentioned earlier seems to totally fit with your Christian faith too. When I was skimming over parts of your book, I noticed you mentioned things like James chapter one, which talks about the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And verses like that are a perfect fit for this resiliency mindset, the post-traumatic growth mindset that you talk about. Having that growth mindset, it seems to fit with your faith, doesn't it? It really does, um, because I know that there's something bigger than myself, that this world is not all about me, and it doesn't revolve all around me, and that I kind of have these choices between lying in bed and doing nothing and feeling sorry for myself or getting up and taking action for myself so that I can be a productive member of society and also help others. So that's what I've chosen to do. I've called this year, 2021, a year of healing and rebuilding. And for me, a lot of that has been centered around health, physical, emotional, spiritual health. 
so that I can be in as good of a shape as I possibly can be because I know that I'm here for a reason and for a purpose and I want to fulfill that calling. And I can't do that unless I take those steps forward. I really appreciate you being a guest on the program today, but before you go, I try to always ask everyone if they have any final thought, any things you wanted to share with the listeners that I haven't asked you about already. I appreciate you having me on the call. It's been great to be able to share some about my own journey and what I'm continuing to work through. I think that it's just so important that we keep in mind that it really is a process that even if something happens suddenly, that doesn't mean we're going to be able to get over it quickly. We have to get that kind of thinking out of our mind and even out of our vocabulary that it's not about getting over it. I'll never get over the death of my brother or the death of my father. But what I can do is I can learn to live with those losses. And so that's the big part of it to me is when we experience something traumatic or very stressful or overwhelming, that we have to learn to live with the things that have happened and not allow those things to control us. Great point to end on. And I really appreciate you being a guest here on the program today. And listeners, if everything you heard today really piqued your interest, I'd encourage you to get Dr. Shaler's book. It's Dr. Laurel Shaler, and that's S-H-A-L-E-R. And her book is titled Reclaiming Sanity, colon, Hope and Healing for Trauma, Stress, and Overwhelming Life Events. And you can get it at a lot of different uh, book distribution websites and so forth. And I'm sure you'll enjoy it if you get that. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Dr. Shaler. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you again for having me. I enjoyed being here. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy. Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com.